holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, goodly morning? Yeah. I think so. Yeah? It's it's look, it's a lot more goodly than I anticipated. So let's let's call it a goodly morning. Okay, okay. Are our standards of goodly being diminished? Is that what we should be well, looking at? Well, that's the real question, isn't it? Yeah. You know, what what are the club's ambitions for what constitutes goodly <laughs> in this day and age? What are our ambitions for what constitutes goodly? Yeah. But look, we've got to take what we can get. I think uh I'll take the goodly mornings when they come this season. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think there is, despite the fact that it was just a nil-nil draw and it hasn't really added a, a W to that list of L's and D's that we've got away from home over the last uh, few months or a few years against the big teams away from home, I think it was a morning or a game from which we can take uh, a fair number of positives mm. and we could have some yeah. regrets as well because I think uh, that was a game that we could have won as well. Yeah, I mean, I put it like this, but just before the game on the Sky coverage in England, they they cut away to a betting ad, like in the 30 seconds before the game. They, mm. they quickly squeeze one in. And at the end of the betting ad, it just, uh, the kind of, the warning slogan sounds where they say, when the fun stops, stop. And I thought, are you talking to me as an Arsenal fan? <laughs> I really was thinking that could be me after 90 minutes, thinking, hey, maybe the fun stopped now. Maybe I need to step away from this. And given the amount of trepidation I felt going into the game, uh, I am I am really chuffed with a point, and I know maybe some people say, well, you know, it could have been more, or maybe that's a little bit, you know, unadventurous to be so pleased with a point. But I think in the circumstances, coming off the back of that Liverpool game, mm. um, it's a very good result and an encouraging performance because, I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this. I, I feel like it's going to be disproved within the next few weeks, but it almost felt, it almost felt <laughs> like we had learned some lessons. Mm, we've learned our lessons. You know, we could have bounced back even. Maybe that's what, what it was about. You know, no, I know, I know what you mean. And in fairness, before the game, there seemed to be an attitude that it wasn't really if Arsenal were going to get beaten, it was how much Arsenal were going to get beaten by. Uh, I rarely watched mm. the pregame build-up or anything like that, but there was a bit of it on before the game started and they had Thierry Henry and they were talking, you know, Graham Souness being a miserable guy like he can be and Thierry Henry was there in the studio and, and the guy, uh, I think it was David Jones from Sky, is asking Thierry Henry, look, what are the positives? Surely there must be, you know, some positives uh, for, for Arsenal, you know, and he said, well... The game hasn't started yet. And that kind of summed up the way people were thinking about what was going to happen with this team, you know? that The game hasn't started yet. That's the positive. That's what we've got uh, to hold on to before a game. So 
you know, to to uh, to come out of the game at the end of it with. Uh, I suppose you would call a respectable draw, but with the kind of performance that's uh, that suggests lessons have been learned. You know, the other thing, though, and, and I want to focus primarily on the positives today, and I think we'll do that between now and the end of the podcast, because there mm. have been so many negatives. The question, I suppose, that occurs to me is, why do we have to keep learning lessons? Why does it take us... Uh, getting smashed at Anfield to go, actually, you know what we should do? We should approach uh, the away games in a slightly different, more conservative way. Why do, why, if we were Pavlov, one of Pavlov's dogs, we'd be just the stupidest dog alive. Every time we went to get the treat, we'd get electrocuted, but we'd still go back. We would not go for the treat. We'd just be the most electrocuted dog of all time. Yeah, and it is absolutely infuriating. I mean, there, you know, it did seem like we had taken something out of that Anfield game, and that we had, uh, you know, implemented some stuff into the team to make us better acquitted for this match. Why that wasn't done before, I don't know. It's not exactly like that was our first ever hammering away from home to a big team. <laughs> um, and I guess the, the the note of caution I would sound is that. I don't even necessarily have absolute conviction that next time we face one of these fixtures, those same systems and same lessons will be still there. You yeah, know, I feel like we forget as with like a goldfish, aren't we? We're kind of like a Pavlovian <laughs> goldfish, just going round and round in circles. But every so often, I guess um, there's this kind of you know sweet moment where mm. we have learnt that lesson and we haven't unlearnt it yet. We're in the sweet spot right now. Be sure, the are. eye of the storm. Yeah, somebody Photoshop a, an Arsenal dog with the head of a goldfish or something that's uh, that's going after his its treats. Um, yeah, look, I think you I think you're right. We we have to. Uh, and people will laugh, I'm sure, but we have to take this approach into all the big games away from home. We There's no other way around it because we saw what the effect of that was yesterday. Uh, you know, they, they were trying to react to that Liverpool game. There's no question that I think, you know, people have spoken about Mesut Ozil and Alexis Sanchez not being there. And I think we'll talk about them between now and the end of the show. But... I think there was just a collective effort anyway. I think if Ozil and Sanchez had played, we we might have seen a much more disciplined performance uh, from both of those guys and, and from the midfield, et cetera, et cetera, because the pressure was on to respond to, to what happened at Liverpool. Uh, but, you know, it worked so well yesterday. You've got to ask questions about what way we approach these games in the future. Um, wh- where should we start with it in terms of team selection, I guess? He went with three at the back. He went with Xhaka and Ramsey in midfield. And that was a worry. I think it's something we discussed on on the last uh, Arscast Extra. And there's obviously a worry when you see what happened at Anfield and you pick more or less the same system or definitely the same system and the same midfield duo that just didn't work there. But the difference was that they had two wide players uh, who who really tucked in and made a difference. I don't know. Did you watch the Gary Neville analysis on Sky after the game? No, I didn't actually. There's a very interesting piece, and he's talking about how, you know, this 
the idea that you maybe sacrifice quality for players who will work hard, you sacrifice talent for for discipline and endeavour. And he used uh, examples like uh, uh, Park at Manchester United, Darren mm. Fletcher at Manchester United. In some of those big games, you remember what Park used to do against us. You'd look at him and think, oh, well, maybe he's a weak link in the team, but inevitably he was really effective against us. And they had a very nice graphic of Shaka and Ramsey in midfield, well back in Iwobi, either side of them. They had them circled. And the four midfield players there, or the four players, kind of keeping an absolutely perfect shape as Chelsea tried to play through us. And that sort of positional discipline went a long way to helping us uh, achieve the result that we did yesterday. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds so straightforward, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you lay it out like that. But it's something that's been beyond us so many times in the past. And, and Xhaka and Ramsey was obviously... I mean, I heard Gary Neville before the game talking about his concerns about that partnership, how they were pulled apart at Anfield. And I don't think he was alone in that. I think we all mm. uh, had those concerns. But they they were much... I mean, look, they were much, much more effective as a unit. I know Ramsey, obviously, will probably get on to him, was probably the standout player on the day. But they were much closer together. They just didn't leave that aching great gap. And Arsenal, in some ways, you know, after the hiding, maybe there was a sense of we need to be a bit more realistic about how we approach these games. Mm. I think often the problem is almost a kind of arrogance, the idea that we can just go and play the same way that we do against a Bournemouth, say, and expect the same results. Yeah. You know, we have to tailor our players, our teams, our tactics to the opposition, especially at that elite level. And it was an r- enormous relief to see that we'd done that. And I think within, as, when we watched the Liverpool game, I think after five minutes, we could all see we're in trouble here. We're, we're going to get battered here. Mm. Like, there's a real risk of that. And I thought in this game, even though we didn't have necessarily that much possession in the early part of it, you could see that there was a little bit of structural rigour there, a little bit of substance to the team. And I was so much more confident about our capacity to, to come away with something. And really... In the first half, you know, I think we had the better of it, really. And, and if we were going to win the game, it was probably going to be in that first 45 minutes because we had some some decent opportunities. Yeah, I thought we started, there was a, a touch of sloppiness, a bit of shakiness in the early early minutes, maybe four or five minutes in. And Chelsea mm. perhaps could have uh, pressed us a bit more. I thought it was very interesting the way Chelsea uh, pressed high up the pitch. They were pressing the goalkeeper when we had possession at the back. We were forced to go long quite often. We didn't really win an awful lot of those, uh, those headers and, and the second balls. But uh, we sparked into life. We just sort of came alive in about 15 minutes when Iwobi played Bellerin down the right, that that cross for Danny Welbeck. Uh, I feel like Welbeck should at least have got that one on target. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a hard one because it's he's meeting it at the apex of his jump. But you'd like, I mean, look, obviously he's not on the pitch. It's not really relevant, but you feel like a, a player like Olivier Giroud or even Morata at the other end is hitting the target there, aren't Yeah. You? Yeah, and there was another chance a couple of minutes later. Ramsey played Bellerin inside, uh, Alonso inside the box. He pulled mm-hmm. it back for Lacazette. You know, there was some real attacking endeavour there from us. The big chance that Chelsea had, of course, was the Pedro moment when he, uh, I think it was Mustafi who played him onside. He went through on goal and you thought, uh-oh, this is this is a pivotal moment in this game. Uh, credit to Lauren Koscielny for getting back. Credit to Petr Cech for standing up, but it looked to me a little bit more like uh, a Pedro miss than a Cech save or a Koscielny intervention. You know, he didn't look that confident going through, did he? 
Yeah, I think that's, you know, the defender and the goalkeeper did everything you'd want them to do in that circumstance. The defender gave him a little nudge, put him a little bit off balance. The, def- the goalkeeper made himself big. Nevertheless, it's in the striker's hands at that point and he mm. really should score from that position. So we got away with one there. Um, that was a big moment in the game, to be honest, because, you know, with this Arsenal team, it's all very well talking about how resolute we looked and how disciplined we looked. But we do know that when we go a goal behind, there can be a tendency for heads to drop. So keeping that clean sheet till half time was was really crucial yeah really was um we could have gone ahead before half time though aaron ramsey's run uh followed yeah. by uh, a shot which rebounded off the post and alexandra lacazette i suspect will be having nightmares about that miss because in a big game like this when you're a finisher the way he is that's that's what his game is all about being a penalty box player he he should have done better with that one. I know it rebounded to him very quickly. I know it was his wrong foot. I know it was a little bit off balance and you can you can use all those things in mitigation. But when you're four yards out in a big game against Chelsea like this and this is your job is to is to tuck those away, I think he'll be disappointed with himself. Yeah, I think there could be no doubt about that one. I mean Ramsey did brilliantly. It would have been a great goal from him and a, a well deserved one too. But when it comes back off the post, it's, a, it's awkward, it's spinning, it's at an awkward height, it comes at him fast. Nevertheless, he would expect to score that and he'll be you know, the most disappointed out of anyone, I suspect, because it would have been a fantastic thing for him. But mm. uh, yeah, I mean, you don't get many chances like that in a game like this. You don't. Um, second half then, what, what was your thoughts on, on the second half? Again, I thought Chelsea uh, had a bit more of the possession, a bit more of the ball. We dealt with pretty much everything. I thought we were really good... When it came to crosses and set pieces and corners yesterday, our defending and our goalkeeping was really aggressive. You could see that there was a real determination uh, among the back three and among uh, the rest of the team to to make sure that they weren't found wanting the way they were against Leicester, for example, because Chelsea are capable of delivering good balls into the box and they did put a couple of good balls in. Morata is very good in the air, uh, but but for the most part, we cope really well with what they had to throw at us. Yeah, I mean... I. With that one to be negative, I'd probably throw in one exception to that, which is uh, short corners and short set pieces. I felt like a lot of the time we were so... Maybe it's because there was such a focus on the marking, the zonal system, you know, making sure we had our runners in the penalty box that I felt like we just weren't switched on for the short ball and it felt like Chelsea knew that and were exploiting it. So that, you know, there was a great example in the first half, I think, where Lacazette just didn't track a runner because he was worrying about the space he's supposed to occupy and they, Mm. you know, played someone in right inside the penalty box. That must be something we need to address in the coming weeks. Uh, We had a goal disallowed. Mustafi headed the ball in and uh, took off celebrating without looking across the (laughs) line to see if the the flag was up. I thought thought that was quite interesting. There was a goal, wasn't there, for Manchester City this weekend. I think it was Gabriel Jesus who was more or less offside uh, for one of the goals that that City scored. And before he'd even uh, thought about celebrating, he was looking across at the the linesman to see if the flag was up. When the flag didn't go up, he had a good celebration. But Mustafi uh, slightly jumped the gun on his... Yeah, he did. He did. He put a thing up on Instagram, a, a picture of him celebrating with the caption, legend has it, Mustafi is still celebrating, or something like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, he really went for it, actually. It's always a bit... Did you, what, did you know? Did, were you up out of your chair, or did you know it was a not a goal? Um... I, I sort of feared the worst. I mean, I didn't didn't know until they showed the replay, to be honest. Uh, but he, he definitely was. I was hoping it wasn't going to be one of those ones where it was his, you know, 
his toe was offside or his little finger or yeah. his helmet was offside or whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, it was fairly blatant. He was well offside. He could just slightly mistimed his run, unfortunately. A good finish. But, uh, yeah, look, uh, it would have made the last uh, the last 20 minutes, the last 25 minutes quite interesting because I thought when Bakayoko came on at halftime, he added something to Chelsea's midfield. And when Hazard came on, uh, he was he was really threatening as well. I think he he added an extra dimension to Chelsea's attack. But for the most part, again, we dealt with what what they had to offer. I think there was one moment where he went on a run. He took a shot from the edge of the box, and I was thinking, oh no, 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 no. This is the moment yeah. where we get opened up, and it's too late in the game really to respond. But you know, Czech made the save, and uh, you know, we, we not that we got away with it, but they were certainly a bit more threatening when Hazard was on. Definitely. I mean, he always gives us problems. Inevitably, he's a, he's a great player. I mean, I think, you know, in the first half, I think we had 10 shots on goal, which is really good. I think it's the most we had in a half away from home in a year mm. since we played Hull, I saw. In the second half, we weren't so much of a threat going forward, apart from that, that Mustafi opportunity. I didn't feel like we necessarily created chances per se. But what I liked about the last 20 minutes was and I'm sure you enjoyed it as well, the kind of cynical edge that Arsenal had, the sense of, well, look, we've got a decent point here and there's no chance we're going to lose it. And if that means we've got to take a booking for stopping a counter-attack mm. up the field, we're going to do it. And I can't tell you how happy that makes me to see and how many times have we seen... I mean, I think it was in this fixture last year, wasn't it, that Hazard ran from the halfway line and we Where failed to bring him down. And we just weren't going to let that happen this time round. So I was delighted by that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that was one of the most enjoyable um, parts of the game for me. Apologies if there was a, a little interruption there. That was a, a video starting uh, automatically on a website. Fucking auto-playing videos. Anyway, um, yes, I, I think it was obvious from the, the start that this was something that we were we were going to implement into our game. There was a great foul. I put a video compilation up. It's on Twitter at the moment. You can have a look at it. And it's, uh, you know, the four fouls. It was Monreal and Morata. There was Elneny on Hazard. There was uh, Kolasinac on, I don't know who it was. Could have been Moses on the halfway line. And there was Bellerin on Bakayoko. And yeah, take those yellow cards. There is such a thing as a good foul. There's such a good thing as a good yellow card to pick up. Because you... Mm. You prevent moments of danger, and it might not look like there could be moments of danger, but, you know, if you get wrong side of your man and they find some space in midfield, we know that uh, teams can open us up and, and teams can uh, exploit that space in behind us. It is one of our big weaknesses, and what we did was we made sure that if those situations were developing, we we snuffed them out through, well, not fair means, but foul means. And I don't have any... I don't have any real problem with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. People will say, oh, you should play within the spirit of the game and all that. But, you know, fuck that. Everybody else does it. We should be doing it. We're far too nice. And it's good to see that there is a bit of cynicism in this Arsenal side. None of the fouls were such that you would run the risk of getting a red card, but they did exactly what they were supposed to do, and that was to stop Chelsea from uh, breaking, from uh, finding space in midfield, and from creating dangerous moments in our half. And, I, you know, I, I applaud it. I would buy each of those players a pint of beer and probably some pork scratchings as well, just to say thank you. Wow. Mm. You were impressed. I definitely was. 
no look i i i really enjoyed that element of the performance too um yeah it's just sensible game it's game management isn't it and that's mm. what we see missing from this arsenal side so frequently mm. uh and i really liked like when Carlos Sinach did his foul uh, you will see it in the, in the video that you posted, actually. He commits the foul and he immediately turns and just sort of gives a thumbs up. I think it might even be to the referee as if to be like, yeah, I know that was a booking. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's sort of an acknowledgement of, yeah, that's fine. Yep, yeah, it was great. Uh, Be- Bellerin's was the same as well. I yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. They, there's no there's no arguing with the call. They all know what yeah, they're doing. Absolutely. It's deliberate. Yeah. And I take great satisfaction from that. Absolutely. I I also like Monreal's like, what? I don't do what? Yeah. I don't do anything. What are, you, what are you talking about? God, for goodness sake. Um, but look, when we're talking about fouls, I suppose we have to talk about the David Luiz foul on uh, Kolasinac, an absolute nailed-on red card. I'm just going to play the uh, the footage of it here, and you can hear the scream from the Arsenal man. Uh, this is Luiz. He's just picking up the ball. Uh, he's moving away from Alexis Sanchez, and this is how it plays out. David Luiz. <laughs> when I heard that scream... When I, I'm like, to be fair to referee, was straight over, straight red card, absolutely spot on decision. You know, we criticize referees week in, week out for getting things wrong, but this was absolutely the right decision. When I heard that scream, I thought, fuck, that dude is, he's broken his leg or he's broken his ankle. Uh, the, the force of the, the challenge. And in fairness, there was, you know, both of them went in. Uh, strongly. There was no holding back on either side. It was obviously uh, Luis who went in uh, recklessly with his foot up and over the ball and uh, and caught Kolasinac. But I was very, very worried that our man was going to be uh, injured. Uh, so it was great to see him come back onto the pitch and then and then commit one of those cynical fouls. <laughs> I enjoyed that. It was. I mean, obviously, the, the man is made of, you know, granite, it was reinforced with steel, so mm. you're not going to break him easily. But I, some tackles sound like a red card, don't they? And that yeah. one, it was the the sound of the impact. You were like, wow, that's going to be a red card. And yeah. It was amazing. I sort of in, must well, I felt like I'd internally kind of jinxed Luis because I think I was almost composing a tweet to say how annoyingly good he had been for the course of the game. I mean, he was first to everything, really. I mean, and I was thinking, wow, he's really matured and <laughs> become a top defender. And then he does something like that, mm. which shows you, I guess, why... Why doubts occasionally persist about him? That, that was a a very very f- f- reckless tackle, well, can, can, and I mean, can, I, can be no doubt about that. Can I take the credit here? Because on in the live blog on the seventy first minute, I said Louise playing very well, hasn't put a foot wrong. <laughs> He's been faultless. And the next update was, damn it, I thought that might jinx him, but he was just brilliant again. And I have to say, he was outstanding. (laughs) He really was outstanding. He intercepted everything. He read the game really well. He used the ball well. He was having a fantastic performance, but he is capable of these moments. So maybe it took a while for my jinx to work, but indeed it did. It worked. I I lured him into this horrendously uh, over-the-top challenge. Uh, Perhaps uh, I might need to work on how those those jinxes are are implemented by the players, but he can have no complaints uh, whatsoever, (laughs) can he? No, none whatsoever. And... I mean, I I, almost, I don't know about you, but when he went off, I can't remember how many minutes there were to go, just a couple of minutes, but I had this slight sense of, ooh, can we can we push on here? Can we can we can we snatch the game again? And I think the team felt a little bit like that, but there just wasn't much time. No, there wasn't quite enough. I think if we if we'd had 10, 15 minutes, maybe we could have. But of course, Chelsea had moments of danger in the last couple of minutes as well. There was a free kick 
uh, that, mm. that again that we we dealt with very well. I thought it was quite interesting when you look at the the Louise challenge. You look at the record that Chelsea have had against us. Uh, Pedro sent off in the Community Shield. Moses sent off in the FA Cup final, uh, and it tallied in for me with that tweet that Chelsea put up before the game. I don't know if uh, if you saw this or not, but oh, I did. Fuck, yeah. the, they put up a tweet saying it's match day, and they've a, a, a football emoji. But what they showed was a clip of Marcus Alonso scoring against uh, scoring against us last season. But of course, it wasn't just a goal. It was a flying elbow into the face of Hector Bellerin, which knocked him unconscious and left him twitching on the ground. And, you know, they could have used, for example, uh, Aiden Hazard's very good goal, overrated goal, I think, but still very good goal from a footballing point of view, rather than an act of violence upon an Arsenal player. So I kind of felt like, fuck you, you deserve that because that tweet was just, whoever's in charge of the Chelsea uh, Twitter account needs a good root up the hole. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was grim. I mean, it was, I think I said online, it's they're just stoked with money, you know, and, mm. and I, it was the kind of thing you would expect from that sort of club. But it, I hope, I mean, if the players saw it, I mean, I thought Hector Bellerin was outstanding on the day. I thought it was really yeah. excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of his best performances for a long time. And I feel like he's quite motivated every time he comes up against Alonso. But I thought he probably had the better of him over the course of the game. He created two good chances in the first half. And I guess on the subject of Bellerin, I mean, that's another, you know, everyone will talk about the absences of Alexis and Ozil from the, is a difference from the team from Liverpool. But I think having proper wing backs in their proper positions is another key, key differential from that Anfield match. Mm. And Bellerin looks so much more comfortable on that right-hand side. Kolasinac, who apparently wants to be called Kolasinac now. He, I mean, did you I, hear this on I did, I did hear this, and I'm paying no attention to it. I've had enough I've Had enough <laughs> of changing his name on this podcast. So Kolasinac, Make about your a, mind up, for mate. For goodness, I've got enough names there, mate. Um, I know, absolutely <laughs> infuriating. Uh, just when you learn one, he keeps moving the goalposts. But anyway, having him installed on the left, Bellerin on the right, I thought that helped us uh, enormously. And I, anyway, I, if Bellerin did see that before the game, if any of the teams saw that clip before the game, it surely must have served as a motivating factor because I know how much it wound me up. Wounded you up so much that well, you couldn't... Wounded me up. It wounded me up that I couldn't even formulate words anymore. You couldn't spoke English anymore. I just, in that moment, wound and the past participle of wine became completely impossible to me. I was mm. like, I've got no idea. I often uh, think that there's... a strange one. There should be some more scope for for uh, for the past tense in English. I think there's there's room for creativity. Like, I always feel like the, the, uh, the past uh, tense of, of knit should be nat. Like, I nat, yeah. a, I nat a jumper. Or not. Yeah. yeah, I nat a jumper. That's nice. Or you look out the window on a winter's morning and it's all white and glistening and you go, oh, it's snow last night. I think that yeah. would be much better than sn- it snowed. Snowed is rubbish. It's yeah. snow. Have you looked outside? It's, yeah, it, it has snoon. It has um, snoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's lots of room for fun. I mean, you know. I'm sure uh, foreign language speakers will say it's complex enough as it is, but I say just, you know, it, 
We've messed it up already. We yeah. should just continue playing English it. is a ridiculous language because there are no real rules uh, in terms of, you know, past tenses and formation of verbs and pronunciation or anything like that. Foreign languages have this uh, marvellously helpful way of doing that by, you know, using accents and stuff like that so you know where to stress the word. But English is just, it's, uh, it's yeah, it's uh, stupid. And I say that as an well, English the, speaker. The, <laughs> Foreign languages are like other Premier League teams. They have structure and organisation. <laughs> uh, English is like Arsenal. It's more jazzy. It is more jazzy. Just kind of make it up as you go along. But to be fair, we didn't make it up as we went along yesterday. Um, overall, then, you're feeling on a game which perhaps we could have won. Um, but I think the positives that were present yesterday are actually genuine positives. And I know some people will say, look, why are we celebrating a nil-nil? Is that not a measure of how far we've fallen? And I agree to a certain extent. I do agree. But also, I think when you do get your pants taken down and you get paddled 4-0 at Anfield, you have to respond in a way. Mm. And we've seen it before. I realize we've seen it before. Uh, I, I think of a game, God, I can't remember who we... I think we played Manchester United not long after one of the other big defeats, and I can't remember which one it was, which tells you uh, its own story, but it could have been a home game. I think we drew nil-nil. Was it or no? Maybe I can't remember. It was a nil-nil with David Moyes, Manchester United, I think. Um, yeah. And it was one of those where we had to dig in and we had to just not lose. But I think away from home the record has been so poor that we simply could not afford to lose yesterday's game because it would have raised far more questions. As it is, I think we have answered them and shown that we are capable. It is now a matter of consistency, right? It's whether we can do this every time we play a big game away from home. Can we at least show the same commitment, uh, organization, discipline? I think Aaron Ramsey used the word solidarity. I thought that was quite interesting as well. That's quite a pointed Mm. word, I think. Can we do that every away game? We're not always going to come away with the result that we want, but if you put in that kind of performance, at least you can't have that many complaints. That's it. That's it. I mean, had Arsenal lost that game to a a late Eden Hazard goal in the 89th minute, a moment of individual brilliance, I would have been bitterly disappointed, but nothing compared to how I felt after the Anfield match. And that's even with a last-minute goal, how cruel that would be. Because at the end of the day, Arsenal went about the game in an appropriate manner, in a in a manner that I thought that I agreed with and that I could, you know, detract some measure of pride from. Mm. So I think... Um, I think it was a positive day. And I mean, looking for other positives, we don't actually have to play a fixture like that for quite a long time now. <laughs> That's another thing that <laughs> I think one. you can't overlook. You know, we had actually a relatively tricky start to the season. Trip to Anfield, trip to Stamford Bridge, trip to Stoke. We now don't play a big four side. You know, we play Everton away, but we don't play a big four side until... Uh, early November the 5th mm. Manchester City so we've got a good little run I mean the fixtures are like you know Doncaster West Brom Bate Borisov Brighton Watford Red Star Belgrade Everton another Carabao Cup game Swansea Red Star Belgrade again before City so yeah. you would think we've got a real chance to 
I don't know, establish enough momentum to make us all feel a bit better about this season and give the team some much-needed confidence. For sure, for sure. And people will judge this team not on those games because those are the games that you're expected to win, but how we deal with those big away games and how we fare against the likes of Manchester City, Manchester United, Chelsea, Liverpool, uh, and other smaller teams who are doing well like uh, Tottenham. Um, You know, that that is the way people will view or judge the, the ability of this team. And I think what was interesting going into this game wasn't so much that we had doubts about the team's quality when it comes to facing Chelsea because you look at the record we've beaten them at home last year we beat them in the FA Cup final we beat them in the Community Shield albeit on penalties it's not about the quality of the players it's about the quality of the performances when we go away from home and we have this psychological barrier that we have to deal with and I think yesterday if the players take anything from that game it's got to be a positive thing that they know that they can go there. And they went there and did that without Mesut Ozil and, for the mm. most part, without Alexis Sanchez. And I think that's that's something from which they can take a bit of uh, confidence and, and credit as well. Yeah, I think it's only something like three times since Alexis signed for the club that we've started without both of those players. Um, you know, usually if they're available, they're in the team. And uh, do you remember that? Uh, was it the FA Cup semi-final when Arsene Wenger dropped Andreas Scharvin because he, he said he wanted the team to know they could win without him? Do you remember oh, that one? Oh, yes, I do. I do. And yeah. we lost. <laughs> <laughs> to but Chelsea as well, a, wasn't it? To Chelsea as well, yeah. But I think in a funny sort of way, he kind of got what he wanted on that occasion this time around. I think it will have been really beneficial for the team to know, I guess, to know they can do it without them, but also because doing it without them is such an illustration of exactly what Gary Neville was talking about, you know, of of putting the team first and of, of playing in a way that suits the greater whole. Mm. Um and that's not necessarily to say, well, we would have lost if Alexis had played or we would have lost if Ozil's played. I think that's a little bit reductive. But I think without them, we were forced to uh, play more strategically and we saw the benefit of that. And yeah. hopefully the team, you know, you know, tactics is so much about belief, isn't it? It's like everyone's been talking about this with Roy Hodgson coming at Crystal Palace. They're like, well, he has a very clear, rigid tactical structure. And over time the team will start to believe in it and grow confident in it and adhere to it. And we saw that with Antonio Conte at Chelsea last season. At Arsenal, it often feels like there isn't a plan for people to believe in, but hopefully we provided the blueprint for one yesterday. Yeah, hopefully, and they can take that on. We're going to talk more about uh, Ozil and Sanchez, I think, in the second part. We've got some questions about that. But anything else over the course of this Premier League weekend that, that sticks out for you? Manchester City just looked uh, good, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I suppose just how absolutely ominous Manchester City look yeah I mean to be fair Manchester United too I mean they weren't as dominant as the scoreline suggests in their game against Everton but they are fairly relentless at the present time what's that their um, third 4-0 think, win of the season yeah they're, they're absolutely racking up the goals both those sides I mean yeah if you want to win the league you've got to finish ahead of Man City on points because you're not going to do it on goal difference mm. are you I think <laughs> I think they're the you know the front runners uh to my mind, I think they look like the strongest sides. Um, yeah, mm. uh, it, it, I, I don't know. It's, it's you know, it's still very early days, isn't it? We're five games in, we're in 12th position. I still don't necessarily think this table is reflective of much. I think after 10 games, it's maybe more 
appropriate to start drawing conclusions, but yeah. you can't argue with what you're seeing from the Manchester side. No, absolutely not. And it does illustrate as well, despite the positivity of what we did at, at Stamford Bridge, that seven points from five games uh, is not great. And it is so important for this team to kick on in the next month or so with this relatively kind run of fixtures to get some points on the board and hopefully to close that gap a little bit as maybe those teams uh, drop a few points here and there. So look, we'll leave that for part one, will we? And... Uh and do the questions? Yeah, let's come back with part two. All right. Raise your hand if you'd like to bid farewell to 2020. Now use that same hand to celebrate the new year with Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly lets you compare prices from local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your door in under 60 minutes. And right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code NEWYOU at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. This holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you sent to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at ArsBlog and also via the ArsBlog Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash the ArsBlog. Before we get into the questions, James, we spoke about, say, Kolasinac, Kolasinac, Kosasinac, Kuslefleble, whatever he wants to be called uh, or whatever he insists people are going to call him. But... Uh, description of the weekend of him, we've called him a tank, a beast, all kinds of things, but Garth Crooks on the BBC went one better. He said, Said Kolasinac is built like one of those North London brick toilets that withstood bombing raids during the Second World War. So Said Kolasinac is a toilet. I love this bit yeah. as well. He talks about the challenge. He says, In my playing days, both men would have received a standing ovation for a tackle like that. Louise no. for <laughs> I swear. Lu- <laughs> Louise for throwing down the gauntlet and Kolasinac for accepting it. Even though the Arsenal defender came off worst, the impressive Bosnia Herzegovina International finished the game and with it earned a moral victory. I'm sure he would have enjoyed that moral victory had his leg been snapped in two. Thank goodness for that moral yeah. victory. It will heal my calcium bits. Fuck's sake. <laughs> I have to say, Garth Crooks' team of the week is an extraordinary work of literature. You know, week in, week out. It's always worth checking out. Mm. Um, yeah, a brick a brick toilet. Well, a toilet. more fool David Lewis for trying to tackle a, a brick toilet. Yes, more fool him. Okay, let's get on with the questions. I'm going to start with this one. It comes from Piken79, who's at Piken Gooner, or Piken Gooner, I'm not quite sure. But he says, was Ozil really injured, or was Arsene Wenger protecting him from the embarrassment? If so, shouldn't he be benched to send a message? I think he was really injured. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't in training. Arsene Wenger flagged after the Cologne game that he was a possible absentee for Chelsea. Aaron Ramsey and 
and Mesut Ozil both needed uh, tests. Ramsey obviously came through, Ozil didn't. So I think he was injured. I think what's interesting is if he hadn't been injured, would Arsene Wenger still have started him? Mm. Uh, and I think he probably would have done because I can't remember many occasions, possibly any occasions, when Ozil has been fit and not in the starting eleven. Interestingly, can, can you Manchester City away in January 2015 when we won 2-0, Mesut Ozil was yeah. on the bench, and I can't quite remember if it was a case that he was on the bench because he was injured or because it was a selection decision from Arsene Wenger. Uh, but he was definitely yeah. on the bench, and that was, of course, the game in which we won away from home against one of the big sides for the first time or for the last time that was the last one I'm just going to go back through the uh, through the Ars blog ar- archives here and see if I can um, find that uh, let's see Manchester Ascertain City ascertain exactly yeah, what exactly. Going on. but on that in fairness there was another tweet from Joe Lamiri who says Ozil was brilliant in the FA Cup final against Chelsea so why this attitude that we're better without him I think, but for the record, I just was doing some ferocious Googling. And as far as I understand it for that Man City game, I think Urza was just coming back from injury. So I think that was a factor in him not playing. I think he hadn't played in the previous game mm. due to injury. Um, but perhaps you'll, you'll, you'll find out more as we go. I, yeah, Urza did start those, that game against Chelsea and did very well in the cup final. I mean, I seem to remember. Uh, he hit the post in that game, didn't he? And I remember thinking mm. that if he'd scored, it would have set the seal on a on an excellent performance. I don't know if I don't know if the sort of individual contribution of Özil versus the individual contribution of, say, Aniwobi, um is what made the difference. But I do wonder if there may have been a kind of psychological effect of not having either Özil or Alexis in the team. I do wonder if that might have. I don't know, granted more responsibility to the rest of the side or just maybe change the emphasis of the way we play. Do you mean uh, Do you mean like um, th- because the, those players were missing, there had to be more effort and endeavour because we're missing their quality? Of. Yeah, kind of. I kind of think that maybe there was a bit of a trade-off there. And I also think so much of our play goes through those two, that I think it would be understandable, a little bit like when Thierry Henry was at the club, that there might be a little bit of a reliance on them at times. Mm. And I think that in some ways playing without them maybe took us back to more basics and I I probably might have just brought a little bit more out of every other player. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's very hard to say. I mean, I do think on Ozil... I, if he, even if he'd been fit, I probably would have said this might not be a great game for him to play. Mm. And I do think that's partly because it's away from home um, as opposed to a neutral venue or a home venue. And, I, and I, I don't even intend that as a particularly strong criticism of Ozil. But I think that sometimes the argument about Ozil, the defensive side of Ozil's game gets a bit reductive. It becomes about, well... Does he run or not? You know, here's this clip of him not running. But here's this stat of him running loads. Yeah. Uh, you know, here's this bit where he's not chasing the ball. Well, here's him, you know, covering 15K more than any other midfielder. And actually, football's about a lot more than running. You know, we're, we're all becoming a bit like Harry Redknapp, just thinking that it's about running. Now, what I mean by that is that I don't doubt 
Ozil covers a lot of ground. I don't doubt that he is a great athlete and that he can sprint into the 90th minute of games. I don't doubt he's got great stamina. Mm. But maybe I do doubt the application of that running from a defensive point of view. Yeah. You know, I think that defending is about more than chasing. It's about no it's about being positionally disciplined and about making marking a priority mm-hmm. and your understanding of space a priority and somebody like Danny Welbeck say I think is actually very good in that capacity I think he's got a very good tactical brain he seems to understand how to play in the shape of a midfield he understands how to press when to press when to drop off and Meza Ozil is a brilliant attacking footballer but I don't necessarily think that those elements of his game are the strongest and that doesn't make him lazy yeah, you know what I mean? I, I 100% agree with you on that. Just going back to the Manchester City game, Ozil was brought back into the squad. He'd recently been injured, so that is maybe why he was on the bench there. But I, I agree with you completely with that. You know, I think it's too easy to say Ozil is lazy, he's this, he doesn't work hard, he doesn't run, he doesn't do this. You know, that that's not the case. I don't think it's the case. I think it's fair to say that defending and the physical aspect of the game is not what he's best at. It's not his yeah. strongest quality. He's not necessarily defensively... Um, I'm not, I'm not going to say aware, but I just don't think it's a natural part of his game. Uh, he's not a defender. No, he's, he's not, not a defensive defender. Player. No, exactly. And he's a number 10, really, who should be playing in behind a striker rather than somebody who should be up and down the flanks uh, defending and chasing back. It's not to say he can't do it. I just don't think he's very good at it. And we have to accept that the, some footballers are really good at some things and not really good at other things. Right. And that's Mm. the thing that he's not really very good at. And he's really, really good at other things. And I think it's it's perhaps incumbent on the manager to to make a call in that regard to say that actually today, the way we want to play, it doesn't suit you in that position. Ozil, we think you're brilliant. You you are brilliant. You're creatively fantastic. But today we need to do this. And that's not what you're good at. So you can sit out this particular game. You know, I don't think there's anything yeah. particularly uh, disrespectful in saying that or even admitting that. You know, Alex Iwobi yesterday didn't make a tackle. He didn't make a single tackle. I looked this stat up on the Arsenal website and he had tackles won. There was no stat for him uh, in terms of tackles won. But what he did was uh, he, he, he was, as you said, positionally disciplined he looked to press the number of times that he actually did you see this it was quite obvious a couple of times where he was looking behind him before he went to press uh whoever the left-sided center half was for uh for Chelsea it was usually Cahill actually before he went to press Cahill he was looking behind to see who was there was he going to leave space if he went and and pressed him was he going to leave too much space in behind was there too much of a gap you know i think he's just a bit more aware of what he needs to do in that regard. And, you know, I think it was a bit of a gamble for Arsene Wenger to choose Alex Iwobi yesterday because he has been struggling for form and people wonder where exactly he fits in the team at this moment in time. He wasn't hugely eye-catching, but I think between himself and uh, Bellerin on the right-hand side with Welbeck and and Kolasinac on the other side, they contributed to a much more controlled uh, Arsenal performance. And I think he deserves credit for that. Like, he wasn't creating chances. He was involved in the Ramsey uh, incident when Ramsey went through on goal. I think he he won the ball back or was there to pick up a loose ball, um, which might make a lie of the tackle uh, stat that I I saw. But, um, you know, 
it sort of suited him and it suited us to have him there. Maybe it wouldn't have done with Mesut Ozil. Yeah. I mean, look, you don't have to make tackles to be defensively effective. I think, was it Maldini who said, if I make a tackle, I've made a mistake. You know, <laughs> I should just be in the right place. Yeah. And particularly in those forward areas, you know, it's predominantly about closing the space and, and pulling into shape when required. And Iwobi did that well. I, I think his youth is probably part of that. You know, I think he... Maybe he's a little bit more inclined to adhere to orders. He's, he's easier to mould to a certain uh, respect. He's got a lot of enthusiasm. But he did his job well. He played without ego. And on the Ozil point, I think that what will be really interesting as the season goes on with Ozil and Alexis, who have been such undisputed first-choice players, and rightly so for such a long time, is how that how their contract situation might begin to influence Arsene Wenger's thinking. Yeah. Does he have less authority with them because he feels I'm so desperate for them to sign, or does he have more because he thinks, well, you're going to go anyway? Mm. In terms of Özil, you know, I've just googled because we talked about Manchester United playing Park earlier, and I just googled United Arsenal Park in 2010. United beat Arsenal one nil. Park Ji Sung scored the goal, and he played in a, a United midfield with Carrick. Uh, with Anderson, with Fletcher. And I'm looking at the United bench now and you had Dimitar Berbatov sat there and Ryan Giggs. And sometimes in these games, there are flair players, top players, who you have to leave out because there is a great strategic idea at place. And, mm. and I think if Arsenal can learn that lesson from this game, then that would be a, a really good thing because I think as good as Ozil is, there are, we have learnt in the past four years or whatever it's been that there are occasions which don't suit him as much as others. Yeah, I think as well, it, it, some of it comes down to the manager and his his belief in the way that he wants his team to play, that, that even with all this evidence, that if you go to an away, uh, away game against one of the big sides and you set yourself up in a, in a particular way, you've got a better chance of getting something from the game. We've seen that happen in the past. We saw it at that Manchester City game. We saw it yesterday uh, at Stamford Bridge, that if you are, if your focus is not necessarily uh, on going to win the game, first and foremost. It can be really effective. But Arsene Wenger, of course, is a manager who likes his team to impose their game. He wants them to play football mm. the way he wants them to play football. How often have we heard it? You know, we don't focus so much on the opposition. Our focus is, is, is on ourselves and, you know, to play the football that we want to play. You can't do that. You can't do that all the time. You certainly can't do it against those big teams. And I think that's where the inclusion of Mesut Ozil in these games comes from, that probably deep down Arsene Wenger knows that maybe this isn't a game that, that suits Mesut Ozil, that it in some ways, yeah. uh, from a defensive point of view, leaves us a little bit weak. But he trusts in the player's creative ability and what he can produce in the final third and what he might be able to contribute to our attacking play. And that, more often than not, wins out for Arsene Wenger. So I don't think it's necessarily a thing... I don't think it's necessarily a, an issue of the player himself, but, but of the manager being brave enough to say to the player, look, the team will be better off without you. But I think it's, it's so anathema to Arsene Wenger and the way that he wants to play. He finds it difficult to do that. Yeah, it is. I, I, I mean, I thought it was interesting as well. It's a small point, really, but the, when Alexis came on, Alexis and Welbeck were on the field and Alexis was put up top and Welbeck in the wide left position. I always yeah. felt within that there was kind of an acknowledgement of, you know, Welbeck's going to adhere to his role more in, in, yeah. in that system. Mm. 
and Alexis a bit more of a free spirit, so put him up there. So I think Arsene Wenger appears to have learnt that about those two players. It really is a question now of how strong he's going to be on that, you know, over the coming months. I mean, what do you feel about that? I mean, there's kind of a question about this. This is from uh, Vivek Iyer on Twitter, who's at Vivek underscore IO9. And he says, I'm not saying they shouldn't be in the team, but would you build the side around Ramsey instead of Sanchez and Ozil for the big away games from now on? Well, look, if Ramsey can show the same positional and defensive discipline that he did in those games, then sure, why not? Because I think we saw what Aaron Ramsey can be and should be on a more consistent basis yesterday. Because he's got Mm. all the qualities you need for a midfielder. He's great going forward. He is, when he sits in and is disciplined, he he helps uh, add structure to the midfield. Himself and Xhaka worked pretty well yesterday. Um and I think that's what frustrates people about Ramsey is that he is perhaps a little indisciplined or he, he lets his attacking instincts override his defensive ones because it's not that he's incapable of being a more defensive-minded midfielder. I think one of the best periods he had in his career was when he was in a partnership with Mikel Arteta and I know Arteta was the one who sat deep and used the ball tidily uh, in kind of the same way Xhaka does at this moment in time but Ramsey was playing off him and Ramsey was the energy Ramsey was the the kind of engine uh, in that midfield so he is really capable of doing it I think the issue becomes as you said with Ozil and Sanchez is what the intentions of those players are when it comes to signing their contracts is it really clear that they're not going to sign do we then start to future proof before the end of the season do we have to look at moulding a team that can cope without them? Um, and it's difficult, of course, because they're both absolutely great players. They both have qualities that this team will need. Um, but it really depends. I mean, I don't think it's um, impossible for Ozil and Sanchez to come in and and play the way that we did yesterday, if they really try. I mean... Uh, <sighs> It's not like it's that complicated for them to do, but I just think there may be times when the when the formation or when the situation demands different qualities in the collective. And I think we have to look a bit more beyond the individual and focus on the collective. I think he did that yesterday with his team selection. It might have been imposed on him. And I think your point about the team reacting to it is a really good one as well in that they, you know, they know they don't have the quality of Ozil or Sanchez in the team. So how do you, how do you offset that? You do it by working harder and and putting in the hard yards, as they say. Um, But I think it's going to be an interesting one over the course of the season. And perhaps when we see uh, Europa League games, perhaps when we see cup games, we'll see a move away from the reliance on those two players. And it, it, it will be a chance for other players to stake their claim. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, certainly, because... You know, uh, there's no doubt we'll need Ozil and Alexis as the season goes on, but maybe, maybe this year Arsene Wenger will adopt more of a kind of Swiss Army knife approach to his squad because we we do have the options, particularly in those forward areas. Um, Although we may have lost one yesterday. It would be a big shame, wouldn't it, if Danny Welbeck's picked up a a serious injury, but it didn't look good at all, I have to be honest. No, Arsene Wenger said it was uh, a good injury, not an easy injury, and I didn't quite know what he meant by that, but a number of people on uh, the Arsblog News comments section have said that it's it's a quirk of the of the French language. So what he means when he says it's a good one is that he means it's 
a bad one, which... Uh, yeah, <laughs> is he, it, he said it before about somebody else. I can't remember who it was, but he means like, uh, oh, he's really done it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, he, he's re- it's a, a strong... Yeah, strong yeah I think it was well. it was on Arsbog News. Christophe Royer, Royer says, unfortunately, I think it's one of those incidents when Arsene Wenger directly translates from French to English as he speaks un bon blessure. My apologies for mangling the French language. Uh, he says, if translated literally, would mean a good injury, but in fact means a serious injury in French. So it didn't look yeah. good for Welbeck. He really did give that groin a good. Uh, a good savaging, actually. He sort of got his foot caught, didn't he? And it opened up quite badly there. So, uh, yeah, fingers crossed. It would be a shame if he was out for any sustained period. It would, because um, not only has he managed to put a run of games together for the first time in a long time, I think it's the first time he's ever started six Premier League games on the spin for Arsenal, but he's also very, very useful in this kind of system, in this kind of game. Mm. Uh, very, very disciplined in the way he goes about his business. So, yeah, yeah. a big shame. You know what, I think there's there's, there's an element of his um, formation as a footballer at Manchester United and under Alex Ferguson in his ability to play that way as well. Yeah, um, certainly. Yeah, all right. Uh, we have got a question from Facebook. This is from Shahin Mahdi. And he says, Mustafi seems to have shifted the way he played as a centre-back this season, marking the man a lot more with regards to body checking as opposed to giving space and deep lying. He says, does the back three suit him the most out of our centre-halves? I'm curious as to what you thought of Mustafi, because I did player ratings yesterday and I gave Mustafi a six and it outraged people. People were going crazy at me because I gave Mustafi a six. Um, you know, there's nothing that winds people up more than than a player rating <laughs> <laughs> that they disagree with, uh, even though I know these I things. Know. <laughs> these things are subjective, folks, and you're more than willing to leave your own ratings. And I'm I'm happy to to comment, but um, I'm I'm curious as to what you thought of him yesterday and on the uh, question there from Shaheen. Well, I, I, to be honest, I've seen a huge variety of opinions about what stuff is yesterday. It doesn't surprise me you've encountered that backlash because I've seen some people slating him and some people praising him as our best player. Um. I wonder if maybe that is a little bit to do with the system and do with the way he plays. So we've got three centre-halves. He's installed as the central centre-half. And I think it was almost, a, a, as the question suggests, a kind of a man-marking situation with him and Morata. And that's not an easy task. I mean, Morata, when we were linked with him a couple of years ago, mm. was described to me as uh, Giroud with pace. And I can kind of see that. You know, he's strong, he's got good touch, much quicker than he appears. Uh, and Mustafi followed him everywhere but I would say to the point where he was getting too tight to him you Mm -hmm. know he was getting turned fairly regularly um, and I think Murata knew that one on one he kind of had the beating of Mustafi I suppose the question is is that instruction or is that the player's initiative you know maybe Arsene Wenger and Steve Bold have said look Mustafi you get tight to Murata Um, if he spins you there are two other centre-half covering you who potentially can fill in behind you just follow him wherever he goes they've got mm. one up top you follow him we'll look after the rest I would be surprised if that was the case because since Mustafi's come into the Arsenal team he's pretty much defended in that manner to my eyes anyway um, he likes to get tight he likes to dive in and it, it does incur risk and it does give away fouls and uh, a lot of centre-halves will struggle with Morata, but Mustafi worried me at times yesterday. Mm. And it's difficult to unpick, isn't it, exactly what makes Arsene 
think Koscielny should be the right-sided centre-half and Mustafi should be the central defender. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to talk to him. I mean, in the next press conference, if I get a chance, maybe I will ask him because I'd love to know exactly what the thought process is there. I wonder, is it more to do... I wonder if Koscielny feels more comfortable there because as a senior man, I, it strikes me that he is the you know, the best option in that, that central role. But I, I don't quite... I don't quite see what it is. And, and with regards to Mustafi, you know, I thought he did quite a lot of things well yesterday. You know, for the most part, he stayed on his feet, which was really good. There was one sliding tackle uh, because he, he has to make at least one sliding tackle every game. It's in his contract, I think. Um, I, I was worried <laughs> a little. YouTube yeah. I mean, one of the cynical fouls we talked about was Monreal's, but that was because Morata got away from... Mustafi quite easily in midfield and, and Monreal had to come in and, and play, uh, make the foul. There was also the offside that uh, Mustafi played Pedro onside. He didn't keep the line well enough and that could have been very costly. Uh, he is he is aggressive. He likes to, to nick in and try and win the ball high up the pitch. And when it works, it's really effective. But when it doesn't, and when you're the middle man in that central uh, defensive three, it can leave you very exposed. I think in the very, very early stages of the game, there was a moment where we got caught. Mustafi was high up the pitch. They played a ball from deep in their own half, and only for Lauren Koscielny reading it brilliantly and, and making a clearance with his heel, Chelsea could have been through very early on. So uh, there's, there's something about Mustafi that reminds me of Vermalen. Mm. And... If you are going to play that way, you've got to have cover. And that's why I think it's it's weird that Koscielny isn't the middle man, that certainly you're too... I mean, if you look at the way Monreal played yesterday, um, Monreal read everything brilliantly. I think he was one of the underrated performers on the day. I think he read he the game right. brilliantly. He intercepted well. He got across to make his clearances. Uh, he didn't have to make too many tackles. He used the ball very well. But, you know, he was in the right place at the right time pretty much every single time. And I think Mustafi just gets caught a little bit. He's still young, in fairness. He's still only 24 or 25. So there is a bit of learning there to do. But like you, I would be very curious as to what the the thinking is between be, behind this uh, selection of him as the, the middle center half. I didn't think he was bad. I just didn't think he was quite as good as everybody else uh, seemed to think yesterday. I think he could have he could have cost us, didn't. Uh, uh, but, you know, he did he did some some stuff pretty well throughout the game um, and look when it boils right down to it Morata didn't really have um, too many opportunities on goal I think there was one header uh, maybe in the second half one header that yeah. went over the bar um, there was another header that went wide but he was offside f for that one um, but I just felt like if there was a weakness in our back three it was going to be Morata on Mustafi I think it in terms of playing in the middle, I think what we've seen from Arsene Wenger occasionally deploying Mohamed Elneny in that role in pre-season is I, I think he likes having a, a passer uh, uh, in the centre of that trio. And I think he really likes Mustafi's ability on the ball. I also wonder if just because he is a little bit impetuous, naturally, that is his inclination, is to try and get to the ball first, a bit like Vermaelen used to do. I do wonder if maybe the way we're playing the back three is that he can come out and do that and track the man and then you've got two excellent covering defenders and if Koscielny has a real loop, what, what happens? Whoa, I'm, just as we're sitting here talking about this, it's as if Samuel Gunner, who's at Sam Gunner AFC, is listening to us. 
because he just well, tweeted really? something. Yeah, he just tweeted something just this second. And he says, Wenger on the central role in a back three being tailor-made for Mustafi. And this is Wenger's quote. He's reading the game well, strong in the challenge, and he likes to talk as well. So that's an important quality in that part of the pitch. On both sides of him, we have Koscielny and Monreal who are quick. So that looks well-balanced. So there's the there's the answer. Are wow, you listening to us, Samuel? How? Where Are is you? he? He's, he's in my room somewhere. He's under the desk here somewhere. It's the it's the wasp. The wasp is tweeting us. Um, yeah, I, Martin Tyler mentioned that yesterday on Sky. He said that Wenger's called uh, Mustafi a natural organizer. I have to say, I haven't really necessarily seen that for myself, but maybe that is the case. Mm. And I uh, yeah, I, I just think maybe Koscielny... He's got an outstanding recovery defender, Koscielny. You know, he's got brilliant acceleration. He he seems to get to lost causes inside mm. the box. Maybe Wenger just thinks it's better to have him sort of covering rather than as the sort of central stopper. But, uh, yeah, look, it's a tricky one with Staffy, isn't it? Because it seems like Arsene Wenger was prepared to let him go a few weeks ago and now he's right at the heart of that back three. Yeah. So I think you can forgive us all feeling a little bit confused about it. All right. Have you got a question? I, I surely do. Let me have a little Actually, look. I've got one here just while we're talking about defenders and, and Koscielny and Nacho yeah. Monreal, actually. This comes from uh, at Talking Arse. Uh, I can't pronounce his name, actually. And his avatar is actually oh. of an arse. Um, it's very good, yeah, yeah. Yeah, with glasses as well. Uh, he says, what's so special about Koscielny and, and Monreal? <laughs> uh, what's so special about Koscielny and Monreal that while many defenders have struggled under Arsene Wenger, they've become so bloody good? Yeah, I mean, I I had this question lined up as well because it it's a very fair point. You know, so many centre halves have struggled or even regressed under Arsene Wenger's management, um, especially in the last ten years or so. Koscielny, you know, he's a survivor, isn't he? I mean, he's, he's played alongside Scalacci, Vermaelen, Jury. Uh, Jury. He's had some, yeah, exactly. He's had some very difficult partners, played in some very difficult teams. Um, I think he's a particularly interesting one because he came to the club relatively young. He was about 24, I think, when he signed for Arsenal. Yeah. And he it's not like he sort of, you know, necessarily learnt his trade um, for a decade elsewhere and came in as the finished product. He has matured into a top centre-half at Arsenal uh, and in quite chaotic surroundings. So... I think that speaks to his individual quality, but I also think it speaks to the type of defender he is. I spoke to, about him as a brilliant recovery defender. And, I mean, he, he really is that. He's absolutely outstanding in those areas. And, I don't know, it's his technical and physical attributes seem to have been enough for him to survive. As for Monreal, I agree with you. I thought he was excellent yesterday. And as a left-sided centre-back, he's so good. Somebody did a YouTube compilation a little while ago, you have to forgive me, I can't remember who it was, but it was of Monreal winning the ball high up the pitch. Mm. He's so good at that. So many times, you know, we score a goal because Monreal's anticipated on the halfway line and just, you know, nipped in and intercepted the pass or won a tackle. There was a beautiful um, one on Fabregas think, yesterday as well, wasn't there? I remember that. Yeah, that yeah. Yeah, he's just so good at that. So, I don't know. Thank God for them. That's what I would say. I mean, mm. you know, we need them. We need them badly. They hold things together really bad for us. What mm. do you think it is about those those two that enables them to flourish? Uh, two things. I'm just going to be very quick on this one because, uh, you know, we're, we time is marching on. want to get a couple more questions in. But first thing I think is that they're... Uh, both very uh, defensively minded. Their first instinct is defensive and B, they're both really smart. They're clever players positionally 
They don't tend to get dragged out of position too often. They read the game very, very well. Monreal in particular, I think uh, since having that spell where he played as a centre-half and one of the two has improved as a defender considerably because it's opened up the pitch to him a little bit. So I think they're both just very good defenders naturally and also really smart and their their intelligence, defensive intelligence, enables them to offset some of the defensive weaknesses we have as a team. Mm. Yeah. As I said, thank God for them. <laughs> uh, I had a few questions about Granit Xhaka. Fred, uh, Fred Thurbin, who's at RLF86, said, do you think Wenger will drop Xhaka due to his low passing stats or hope he can play himself into form? He's dropped him before. Yeah, I think I had a, there was a question on that as well. Uh, Slim Jim, who's at Los Artilleros 1, says, mm-hmm. Jack has passed stats, low, ath- low athleticism, poor tackling. Is it time to give El Nenny and Rambo a try? Um, I, Jack has passed stats this season are a little bit iffy, aren't they? But last season, I don't think yeah. they were... At all. Um, I'm just looking here at his stats from, from yesterday, 77%. Yeah, you want your, your deep-lying midfielder to be better than that in terms of uh, in terms of his passing. I think he's going through a little bit of a difficult spell. And, you know, it's... I think he might need a bit more time to write things from a statistical point of view. Because if you look at the way we started the season, we left him exposed and I, I've kind of felt sorry for him he's not the most mobile player so what you don't do is leave him exposed or leave him in a position where he's picking up the ball from his centre halves and he's looking ahead of him and pretty much every Arsenal player is behind a, a, a wall of opposition players Um so I think those past stats are a little bit skewed I don't think he will drop him I think what Xhaka gives us uh, as a player is is valuable I think he can play better than he has done at the start of this season, but I think he's, his ability to move the ball across the pitch and to find spaces uh, behind defenses is really going to be is going to be really really important. Um, I didn't think he was bad defensively yesterday. I thought he got stuck in. I thought he he uh, he did his job defensively as as much as you would uh, as much as you would like him to do. But I do feel there are still some issues in midfield that that we've got to work on. And it depends a bit on Aaron Ramsey as well. I think if Ramsey and Xhaka can be that compact and that disciplined uh, for the next three or four months, if they can play together, then I think they can offset some of the weaknesses that both of them have. Uh, But I think Xhaka's past statistics are a little bit skewed just at this moment in time. I I would prefer to have him in the team than anybody else at this moment in time. I like Elneny. He's he's relatively tidy. He gets uh, gets around the pitch well. He works hard. He runs. But I think what we need is a bit more quality on the ball in those deep areas. And when people bemoan the absence of Santi Cazorla, Xhaka is the player who can give us at least some of that without perhaps the ingenuity and the mobility that Santi Cazorla has. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you, and I think at his best, he's a very useful player. I have been surprised by some of his sloppiness in the early part of this season, mm. and I guess, I guess it's important to recognise that someone <laughs> can be an important first team player and someone who you do want in the side in the longer term, but can also go through a bad run of form. And I think he is in a bad, a, a relatively poor run of form. I mean, for him those passing stats I think it's 81% accuracy over the course of the season and 
that's not good enough for him, really. I think he would know that. I think he's he's better than that. And, you know, your Mohamed El Nenis are up there. He's a, a less adventurous passer, granted, you know, in the 90s or mm. so. So I think he does need to improve on the ball and, may, and, you know, whatever it takes to do that, really. If it is stepping out of the side for a moment or, uh, I don't know, just a bit more confidence. But I think he's not been... He's not been at the level I hoped for this season. Um, but, you know, as fans, we always polarise, don't we? That means he's rubbish and we've got to bin him off. I don't subscribe to that either. I just want to see him playing better than he is right now. Mm. Um, because at his best, he can be so great. As we saw, I mean, you know, I thought in the Community Shield against Chelsea, he was really, really excellent back at the start of the season. He just hasn't seemed to kick on from there. So hopefully he can turn the corner against yeah. him. Yeah, I mean, I think as much as anything, you know, when you're... When you're Fullbacks and strikers, perhaps, um, they can be viewed a little bit more in isolation because they've got specific things to do. But when you're a central defender, for example, or a central midfielder, a lot of what of how you play is dependent on your partner and mm-hmm. how well you fit together as a partnership. You know, we talked about Lauren Koscielny, right? Lauren Koscielny and Thomas Vermaelen were, to my mind, an incompatible partnership because they both liked to play the same way. They both wanted to be aggressive, to nip in ahead of the attacker and win the ball high up the pitch. And and what was happening was both players were looking slightly dodgy because of that, that when one went, the weakness uh, was exposed. When Koscielny was partnered with Per Mertesacker, they became a very good partnership because they complemented each other. Mertesacker could read the game. He could see when Koscielny was going. He could mop up in behind him. And Koscielny was able to mm. compensate for perhaps Mertesacker's lack of mobility or pace at times, that he was the man to make the uh, the last-ditch tackle as and when that was required. So, you know, they, they both developed or they both became a good partnership, but, you know, they looked better players with each other. And I think that's true mm. to an extent with Xhaka, that he does need maybe somebody who can who can make him look a bit better. You know, we've heard many times about players who come in and make another player look better, and Xhaka could be one of those players, so, so we'll see. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the other side of this coin that I just would touch on briefly is that I, I have enjoyed uh, Mohamed Elneny's performances this season. I think for the most part, he's looked really tidy and I think there is a bit more variety to his passing than we've seen in the past. He seems to be able to, to pick balls out over greater distance, a little bit more adventure in his play on the ball. So I think, uh, you know, if he was to get a shot, I mean, he will. He will in the cup games in the Europa League. So it'll be interesting to see if he can sort of mount a serious challenge for a first-team player. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I've noticed about Elneny is that his passing has been a little more erratic than I had thought. Uh, you mm. know, he was usually... People criticise him for taking the safe option. Uh, there has been, I think, uh, an attempt by him to be a little less safe. You think of the pass that he made against Cologne on Thursday night over the top for Theo Walcott, which resulted in the Kolasinac goal. Uh, mm. You know, he's tried to... to add a bit of variety and a bit of creativity to his passing, I don't think it's always worked. And I don't think it's necessarily um, the best thing. You know, if he's in the team, maybe you just want him to be that safe option that you give it to the player who can do the creative thing. But, you know, uh, we'll see how it goes. Okay, we've got time for just a couple of quick more. Mark Levis, Mark Levi's. Is it Mark Levi's? L-E-V-I-S. Is it Levis? Levis? Levi's? I think you'd be pronouncing it Levi's, wouldn't he? Levi's, surely, yeah. Yeah, after the iconic brand of of jeans, you would call yourself that. Um, 
He says, how many rakes would be sufficient punishment for that challenge on Said Kolasinac yesterday, of course, by David Luiz? You know what I'm talking about here? I actually don't. Rakes? Yeah, like, r- as in a garden rake? Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I... <laughs> I'm with you, I'm with you. Um... Quite a lot, actually. And I think that would be... I think it should happen on the field at the time of the red card. Just make him stand on rakes. Yeah. <laughs> they should They should line them up. <laughs> uh, as he, uh, Maybe down the tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> that would be brilliant. They have the tunnel cam on as he goes down there, rake after rake. Oh, that would be superb. <laughs> um, so that for if you don't know is uh, Sideshow Bob from The Simpsons from the classic Cape Fear episode of, of The Simpsons which is right up there with one of the best uh, of all time and Sideshow Bob just steps on rake after rake after rake <laughs> <laughs> alright I've got a final quote do you have one more before I Go give on. you my final one or do you or... no just give me the final one and hit me with it okay I'm going to hit you with this right I'm going to hit you with this because this is okay. this is almost rake Ah. Daniel Houston, who's at GoonerDan01, he says this. Now, I want you to brace yourself, James. Are you sitting down? Okay, I'm bracing. You're sitting down? I'm in the brace position. Right. He says, have either of you tried ham on Pringles? If not, why not? They are way better than ham on Ruffles. Oh, my. Oh, good Lord. I mean... I, I mean, where do we even start with this? I can't believe you didn't do this as the first question. We need more time. <laughs> <laughs> how do we? Um, how do we? Ham set- on Pringles. Yeah. Uh, so, full disclosure, I haven't tried them. No, neither have I. Um, and if I'm honest, I've got real doubts if they can match ham on ruffles. Real doubts. I, I I'm not really a Pringle guy in any context, to be honest. I'm not big on Pringles. How about you? I fucking hate Pringles. <laughs> I f- I hate them. Like why? Well, firstly, I saw a video of how Pringles are made. Oh, good lord! Never do that with anything that you know. I know it's true, but basically, what they do is they get all the ingredients, and you think, oh, potato crisps, how do they get them so, look at that shape of them, you know, they must be, they must spend ages handcrafting each Pringle into that perfect Pringle shape out of potato. That's not the case. What they do is they get all the ingredients, and they, they melt it down into this kind of gelatinous, gloopy, goopy stuff, and then they mold it into that shape and it's like a big, long thing of, like, you know, tinned spam or something like that. But it's gloopy and it's Ooh. it's horrendous. And then they get the machine, the machine goes... And cuts them up and then they do whatever they fucking do to make them crispy and what have you. And that's why they're all that. But that, for a start, turned me off Pringles. But the, the, the thing most of all that I hate about Pringles are green Pringles. The sour cream and onion flavor Pringles. Oh God, no! Disgusting. I can't be near them. No, can't they be are near absolutely. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> they really. Yeah, that's oh. how they make you feel. So th- th- that's why I hate Pringles 
They're disgusting. And, and those they... those ones are everywhere, the green ones. They're I know. ubiquitous. They seem to be like Pringles flagship flavour. My 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 favourite bar in town that we go to, they have some snacks behind the bar. You know, they've got uh, peanuts, as every bar should have, and every bar that doesn't have salted peanuts is is not a bar worth talking about, let's, let's face it. But they have mm-hmm. uh, those little mini tins of Pringles behind the bar. They've got the red ones. They've got some fucking orange ones. But most people just take those green sour cream and onion ones and if you're sitting beside somebody who's eating those flavor pringles it's all you can smell i'd rather fucking smell the toilet than smell green pringles i know i don't get it it's like but ham on ruffles are delicious because ham on is lovely i'd love a little bit of ham on i'm never going oh do you know what i'm gonna do get a load of sour cream mash up an onion in it and eat it out of a bowl no that's not a nice flavor no it's not it's not. And with all the other artificial bits and pieces that go into those Pringles, you know, you've got this reconstituted goo in crispy form. No, fuck off. I say no, no, no. Especially now we know how they're made. You know, the the ham and ruffles crisps, those potatoes are hand-reared on an open field where they can run free and play. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? They live a good life, those potatoes. They do. They can they can uh, eat truffles from underneath the uh, the trees and that's where they get their delicious rich flavor from. And then when it's time exactly. to when it's time to make them into ham on ruffles, there's no cruelty. There's no melting them no. down. No. They they go, they go voluntarily. They do. They want to be inside you they want to be inside your mouth being crunched with deliciousness because that's their their raison d'etre that is why they yeah. exist just to be ham on ruffles but these sabor ham on pringles no no it's an absolute it's uh it's uh what's the word i'm looking for it's a travesty daniel houston at gooner dan zero one not that i'm suggesting anybody should you know criticize him on twitter or anything i'm not i'm not <laughs> But you're, I think you're very wrong here, Dan. Very wrong. Very wrong indeed. Very wrong indeed. I, I'm, I'm even loath to suggest some sort of taste test, frankly, because I, you know... I will not I do it. Want to do that to I ourselves. will not do it. It's like but, saying... Well, there you go. You point blank refuse. I refuse. It's like, do you, do you want to eat something that tastes like shit? No, I do not. <laughs> okay. Problem solved. Yeah. 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 So anyway, there we go. Get back in your box or your tube, your, your, your big long your, tube. Your big long tube full of bleh, bleh, full of horrible, horrible stuff. Yeah. Um, right, you know what though, James? We've got a football match this week. Doncaster Rovers in the Carabao Cup. Yes, looking forward to it. Mm. Um, Are you going? I, I, to be honest, I quite, I quite forgot about it. Yeah, I am going to go, I think. It's not on the telly, so everyone's freaking out. It's not on the telly. How are yeah. we going to watch it? But I don't know. There's bound to be, be some streams out yeah, there. Yeah, there's bound to be some kind of uh, perfectly legal stream out there for people to uh, to uh, watch the game on. We'll see. That's on that's sure. on Wednesday. So, look, we will discuss that game, and we'll look ahead to the... Oh, Oh, we're going to have to do the Arsecast Extra next Tuesday because we're playing next Monday. We've got one of those Monday night football games. Boo. Ay, ay, ay. Okay. Well, that'll be exciting. Monday mm. night football, West Brom, isn't it? West Brom. Yeah, I mean, living the dream there. Monday night football, Arsenal versus West Brom. What more could you want? Um, what a night. Hopefully they have Sam Allardyce back as a guest. <laughs> Could it be any better than that? All it could be is a tube of uh, ham on Pringles. 
That's what they should get on as yeah. the uh, as the one of the pundits. Show you the quality. <laughs> um, right, okay. Well, look, we'll leave it there, and we will chat to you on the next one. Thanks, as ever, for listening. Remember, give us a rating or a review on iTunes. Uh, it'll send our ruffle rating through the roof. We'd really appreciate that. We'll catch you on the next one. Cheers. Bye-bye. holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply.